Good morning Open Door Church. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Ruth and I'm going to be taking us through the second part of our Easter series on Jesus the Suffering Servant. There is so much to know about this subject that it is difficult to know where to begin, what to put in the middle and how to end. On the face of it, we all know the story and we've heard part of it again this morning where Jesus is crucified. We know that for some reason Jesus had to die so that we could be set free from our sins and brought back into relationship with God. And I've spent the last few weeks trying to get my head around the enormity of what Jesus did on our behalf in his suffering and death. Why did he have to suffer in the way that he suffered? And what did his suffering accomplish? Now, I naively thought that I could read a few books, read the Bible, understand the subject in its entirety, and then communicate that to you this morning. Honestly, that's not going to happen. The more I read, the more I realised that I don't fully understand this. So there might be some gaps this morning, and I pray that you would bear with me in that. What I have learnt is that there is so much more that God needs to reveal to me. There's so much more that I want to discover about this subject. And I would really encourage you to um, come with me on this journey as um, I learn more, as I discover more. Um, look into it for yourself. Find out the things that I've not been able to say this morning. It is an exciting um, subject to explore. Um, it's deeper than I realised. Um, but having said that, my prayer this morning is that through what I bring, Jesus would reveal something more of the beauty and the glory of what he did for us on our behalf by suffering and dying in our place. So let me pray. Jesus, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, my Lord, my Rock and my Redeemer. Amen. Now I wonder if you can estimate how many times you have read or heard the Easter story. I'm guessing that since we became Christians, since we gave our lives to Jesus, we've heard it at least once a year and we've probably read it more if we've read the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John at any other point within the year. And I wonder if it feels a little bit like the Christmas story to you. A little bit like, oh, I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt, I know what's coming next, you don't need to tell me. I think it's easy to not really take in what you're hearing when you've heard it so many times before or to skim read the passages but there is so much powerful truth so much that is crucial to our faith in these passages that I want to take a deeper dive into them this morning I wish I could read them to you um, I wish I had the time to do that I don't. So what I would really encourage you to do this week in the lead up to Easter Day next Sunday is to read the account from the Last Supper to the Crucifixion. Read it slowly, meditate on it, 
ask God to reveal things to you that you haven't seen before. As I've done that in preparing for this talk, I've seen things that I didn't realise were there and it has been so good for me to do that, to see it with fresh eyes, to not just presume I know what's coming next. Though I can't read it to you, what I am going to do, or try to do, is highlight some of the events in these passages so that we can really begin to grasp what Jesus suffered on our behalf. I wonder how you think about the suffering of Jesus. For me, I'd only ever really focused on the physical aspect of his suffering, and I think that's quite natural because it does, after all, end in his crucifixion, which is probably the worst form of pain and suffering that a human being could experience. However, in only seeing his physical suffering, I miss that he also experienced deep emotional suffering too. And this emotional suffering comes before any of the physical pain that ultimately leads to his death. So, in the Garden of Gethsemane, that's where we're going to begin, in the Garden. Jesus draws Peter, James and John away from the other disciples to watch and pray with him. The passage in Matthew's Gospel that describes this scene says that he began to be sorrowful and deeply troubled. This is the first mention of any emotional distress on the part of Jesus. And it hit me that just because Jesus is God and man at the same time, the human part of him that's not right. <laughs> the God part of him doesn't cancel out the human part of him. He isn't somehow immune from fear of what he's facing. He feels the anxiety and the agony of it and in his distress he wants his friends to be close by, to be with him in his suffering. He doesn't want to be alone. Jesus then expresses this emotional turmoil to God as he prays, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. I'm not surprised that Jesus prays this. He knows what he's coming. He knows the kind of death that he is going to die. And like many of us, Jesus, in his humanity, wants there to be another way, a less painful way. The very thought of what he is going to go through is enough to cause him such acute distress that even though he is the son of God and this is the climax of his ministry, he asks for it to be taken away. I wonder if you're like me and can fully understand this. By nature, I'm not a risk taker. I don't put myself in situations that could cause me pain. I don't tend to have mishaps and I've never broken a bone. If I was in Jesus's position, I would absolutely be praying the same thing. My brain struggles to process the physical pain that Jesus actually went through. And I just can't imagine what it would have been like 
to know that that pain's coming, to face it myself. So I am left completely stunned that in the very next breath, Jesus says, if this cannot pass from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Let that sink in. If this cannot pass from me unless I drink it, your will be done. As he's done throughout his ministry, Jesus submits himself and is willing to be obedient to what God requires of him. Because he loves the Father, he wants to bring glory to the Father. And he loves us with a love so deep that it triumphs over his very human desire to avoid the pain. All this emotional suffering is compounded by the scenario that soon unfolds. We've seen that Jesus wanted his friends close as he faced the darkest hour of his ministry. Yet, as the account moves on, one of these friends who had lived with him for three years, who had eaten with him, who had done ministry with him, shared life with him, comes up and betrays him with a sign of friendship and brotherhood, a kiss. Can you imagine how that would have felt to Jesus? That someone who he had shared so much of his life with would betray him in such a way. For me, I can only think that though he knew it was coming, it caused Jesus nothing less than utter heartbreak. The other disciples see him betrayed, and we don't have to read much further to learn that they left him and fled. Jesus had wanted his friends close, but now he is left all alone. So before Jesus even experiences any physical suffering, he is suffering internally and emotionally. And it's so important for us to remember that this is suffering that he took on himself for us in our place. If you're like me, you can hear the account of how Jesus suffered dispassionately because you've heard it so many times before. So as I take us through a summary of what follows this scene that we've just looked at in the Garden of Gethsemane, I'd encourage you to close your eyes if you're willing and allow yourself to picture what I'm about to describe, becoming a witness to the events as they unfold. Jesus is taken from the garden to the Jewish council and here his physical suffering begins. Jesus endures false testimony, is spat upon, struck, slapped and mocked before the council. He is delivered over to Pilate where the crowd are unanimous in their desire for a murderer to be released and Jesus to be crucified. The physical suffering intensifies as he is scourged. 
a form of punishment that tore at his flesh and left such deep wounds that many prisoners died from this alone before they were nailed to a cross. With his body broken and bleeding, Jesus is stripped, dressed in a scarlet robe, and a crown of thorns is pressed down onto his head. Blood would now be seeping from head wounds caused by the thorns as he is mocked, spat on, and struck on the head with a reed. Then he is led to a hill outside the city. The physical pain so acute that he cannot carry his own cross and the Roman soldiers call on a man from the crowd, Simon of Cyrene, to carry it for him. Once on the hill, Matthew's Gospel tells us that they crucified him. Thick, sharp nails are hammered into Jesus' hands and feet. As the cross is lifted up, every breath is agony as his hands and feet pull on the nails. Soon his body will tire. Breathing will become impossible as his lungs fill with fluid. As this happens, Jesus cries out twice, the first cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is an echo of Psalm 22 that speaks of the desolation of feeling abandoned by God. Yet, if you know Psalm 22, it points to the faithfulness of God to hear and not to abandon, even in suffering. And it also points to the ultimate victory that is coming when, as in verse 27 of that psalm, it says, All the ends of the earth shall turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. The second cry is tetelestai, it is finished, the work is completed. With that, Jesus yields up his spirit and he dies. If you haven't already, feel free to open your eyes. Jesus' suffering goes beyond anything that I could imagine or have experienced. And here at the end of it all, he declares, it is finished, the work is completed. So what exactly is it that Jesus has just done by suffering so much and dying? Ultimately, Jesus went through the intensity of so much suffering to win a victory. But what kind of victory was it? I mean, suffering and death don't look much like victory. And it wasn't the victory that the Jews were looking for in their Messiah. As we heard last week, for them, this victory would have looked like the overthrow of their oppressors, namely the Romans, and the re-establishment of their rightful rule and reign in the land God had promised Abraham right back at the beginning. No, this wasn't the victory they were looking for. You see, the victory that Jesus had won was far wider reaching than that. 
It is a victory over sin and the consequences of sin. John Piper, a theologian I read while preparing for this talk, says that Satan only has one weapon that can damn us to hell, unforgiven sin. Unforgiven sin. This weapon Christ stripped from Satan's hand on the cross. You see, sin stops us from being the image bearers of God that we were created to be. It removes God's presence from us and ultimately it leads to death. It gives the dark forces of this world a foothold that they will not willingly relinquish. So sin has to be dealt with once and for all. For sin to be dealt with, sacrifice is required. It has always been the case that sacrifice is needed to remove the consequences of sin and allow God's presence to remain with his people. Another theologian, Rowan Williams, tells us that sacrifice is when blood is shed in God's presence on behalf of God's people for the avoiding of disaster. It is something given over into the hands of God, most dramatically when it is a life given over with the shedding of blood. The gift of lifeblood somehow casts a veil over sin. It removes the consequences of sin. It offers the possibility of a relationship unclouded by guilt with God. In the Old Testament, it was the lifeblood of an animal that was spilled to provide a temporary veil over sin. But as soon as a person sinned again, another sacrifice was required. These sacrifices weren't enough to deal with sin once and for all. A better and more complete sacrifice was needed. Let me remind you that we were the ones who had sinned. We were the ones who had a death sentence over our heads as a consequence of that sin. We were the ones who should have had to deal with the consequences of our sin. But precisely because of our sin, we could never do that perfectly. So here is Jesus, the man who perfectly reflected God back to himself and only ever did what he saw the Father doing. Being a man, he represents us. Being perfect and without sin, he was the only one who could perfectly deal with the consequences of sin. So he becomes our substitute and he does what we could not do. He is the perfect sacrifice. He takes on the suffering and death meant for us and in doing so he is the one that wins the absolute forgiveness of sins for all mankind. It wasn't just for the Jews, it was for all mankind. This is the victory. As the sins of the world are forgiven by the Father through Jesus' suffering and death, the power of the dark forces of the world that held men and women everywhere, captive to wickedness, to disease, to shame and ultimately to death, are broken 
they're broken because sin was the only thing that gave them power in the first place and now sin has no power it's been forgiven completely totally utterly for all time this is a victory that restores God's presence to us. It is a victory that allows us to become God's image bearers once again. It is a victory that ushers in the rule and reign of the kingdom of God, where there is no wickedness, sickness, mourning or death. It is a victory that is sealed by the resurrection which we look forward to celebrating next week. Amen.